0: Welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Glad to have you all back for part two of the interview with Dr. Deal. I hope you enjoyed part one. But before we get into part two of the interview, I have to provide this week's HPI, aka Healthy People, information. So in this week's HPI, I'm going to talk about racism. Ah, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm going to talk about COVID. Man, to see some of you all faces right now would probably make me shed a tear from laughter. I left a little silence so you have to sit there wondering, is he really about to talk about racism? I know it's Black History Month, but I thought he was going to talk about COVID testing. Don't worry, I'm going to talk about COVID testing. Just wanted to wake you up a little bit and grab your attention. I hope that worked. Let's get into COVID testing. COVID testing can be categorized into two different categories, diagnostic and antibody. I'll start by talking about the diagnostic types. There are two different types of diagnostic tests, which consist of molecular and antigen tests. Molecular tests, also known as PCR tests, are the most accurate tests and test for the genetic contents of the virus. These results can come back pretty fast if they're done in the hospital but if done in other areas like a doctor's office, like what I work at, they can take longer. Turnaround times at my office have been around five to seven days. We have to send these labs off to various industries across the country, various labs, and we have to wait for them to return the results. The other diagnostic COVID test is an antigen test. The antigen test tests for the presence of viral proteins. So proteins the virus makes. These are the tests that are done at CVS or other places that give you results in 30 minutes to an hour. The last COVID test is an antibody test. Let me guess, that test for antibodies? Yes inner voice, it does. Yes. I knew I was smart. I can be a doctor just like you one day. (sighs) Inner voice, you are me, we're already a doctor. Oh, yeah, I am you. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. I got six figures in loans, but I'm a doctor. Get out of here in a voice. So back to antibody tests. Antibodies appear approximately five to 14 days after onset of symptoms. A positive antibody test doesn't confirm if you're currently infected. It just confirms that you've been exposed. To determine if you're currently infected, you need to have one of the diagnostic tests I mentioned earlier, like the molecular test or the, what's the other test? No, oh, I forgot already. <sighs> Come on, pay attention. The other test is the antigen test. There's only two tests. You can't just remember two things. That's all I ask you to do. Two things. So either molecular tests or the antigen test. The time it takes for the antibody test to come back can be between three to five days, depending on where the sample is processed. So out of all of these tests that I mentioned, the molecular test, also known as a PCR test, is the most accurate of those tests. So if I was to get a test and I wanted to confirm that I didn't have COVID, I would want to get the PCR test because it's the most accurate test. There are multiple different companies that have developed tests. Each lab or manufacturer has to submit paperwork for approval to the FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration, under the Emergency Use Authorization. As of February 8, 2021, there are over 100 commercial and laboratory tests approved for molecular testing, that's the PCR test, and there is some variability in the accuracy of each test. As of yet, there has yet to be a gold standard tests develop a lot of companies saw a need for testing and a lot of companies stepped up to provide that need that's how people are able to do tests in the comfort of their homes i know there's companies that come straight to your house and can swab you basically just you sticking your head through the door other tests at parking lots and i know before some comedy shows like dave Chappelle, they do testing before you're able to go into the show So there's a lot of companies stepping up to the plate to make testing available. Well, that's it for your quick HPI, healthy people information on COVID testing. Now for part two of the interview with Dr. Deal. In part two, we get into how Dr. Deal knew that the COVID wave was going to hit Comanche County around the winter time, the typical symptomatic course of patients she's treated in the hospital or clinic setting, and What went into her decision to get the COVID vaccine during her pregnancy? And of course, we wrap up the interview with Randy's random questions. So here's part two of the interview with Dr. Deal. All right. So you mentioned something earlier about, I think it was at the end of November, beginning of December, that you knew the wave was coming. What did you see or what were you looking at that made you know that the wave was coming?
1: Around that time, things were getting really bad in El Paso and also in Lubbock. So those are two, obviously, bigger places, El Paso being much bigger than Lubbock, but two big places in West Texas where, you know, we've, we've had some outbreaks in Houston back in the summer, maybe a little bit in DFW in Dallas-Fort Worth in the summer, but it was pretty telling when in El Paso, they were bringing in refrigerator trucks and hiring the National Guard to take care of dead bodies. And then you could see up in Lubbock where, again, very spread out. I mean, it's 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 a big city. I mean, it's quarter million people. So 250,000 people. I don't know how big Lubbock is. I think it's that big. 300,000 maybe. So a big city, a college town, Texas Tech is there. But They started having cases after cases. Their hospitals were getting full. They were setting up medical tents outside of the hospital. And it was very obvious that if that was happening there, it was only going to come down even to our smaller communities. And knowing that the holidays were coming up um, and people were gathering and kids were back in school, which, which, by the way, I'm totally for... I'm all about kids being in school during all of this, which could be a different conversation, but, you know, kids being back in school and and just, you can tell, you could tell from things that were happening in social situations, even though I haven't really been social, but that people weren't really following any sort of guidelines anymore. I mean, one thing I could tell is, Like we would go to church and, you know, despite the fact that the auditorium is huge or the sanctuary is huge, everybody's still sitting right next to each other and nobody has masks on. You know, we'd be in Sunday school with 15 other, I'd be in Sunday school with 15 other women. Nobody has any sort of mask on. And fair enough, because at that time there wasn't, we really didn't have cases. And, you know, you could kind of, Modify your actions based off of how many cases were going on in our county, but I knew that if we continued this way, Mm. that it was eventually going to come to us, and and in fact, it did.
0: Right, did stuff start to change once you start to the wave hit your area, like at church or grocery
1: stores? Probably before you know September, October. I think you go to go to the grocery store and oh, I, I mean. 25% of people would maybe have a mask on. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it would even be that high. Mm -hmm. Now, if you go, like I was just there earlier today, I don't know if I saw a single person without a mask on. Um, So I I, I would safely say that most public areas where you go now in our county, now some of the surrounding counties, not so much, but in our county, I would say 80% of people wear masks but one of the things that I've really been pushing is, you know, it's it's not all about mask wearing. I mean, we have plenty of studies, observational studies that show that wearing a mask can reduce the risk of transmission. You know, maybe even redu- reduces the risk of severe disease by the amount of virus that you get. So something called viral load. So we definitely know that it, that masks are important, but you can't like, there's no point in wearing a mask to the grocery store if you're going to go to your family barbecue with 50 people on saturday and and i think that's kind of where the the fallout is with a lot of this is we finally convince people hey can, you know wear a mask in public you know try and stay but then like there's still a lot of social gatherings that are happening and that's where it's spread i mean you know i ask people rarely do people come out come up positive and they have absolutely no idea where they could have gotten it from, that they like really follow the guidelines and, you know, maybe they only really go to certain things. It's always like either they kind of participate in high-risk situations or they know somebody that had it and they were exposed to it. So, you know, and that's part, that goes back to part of the unified messaging that we should have for people is really educating and, and letting them know what really is important. And we don't do a very good job at
0: that. Right. And do those people ever feel guilty after they tell you that? Like, yeah, I was at Cousin Carol's birthday party. I was only there for five minutes. And next thing you know, I had a cough and I couldn't smell a couple of days later.
1: Yeah. I, you know, sometimes, yes. Sometimes they're still really surprised somehow that they that they got it. I don't know. I, I think... <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Sometimes they're still kind of surprised. Well, I don't know. I don't really go anywhere. And then you're like, well, you know, Bob, I saw you at blah, blah, blah. Like I heard that you guys had, like, I had a patient, I had a patient, an elderly patient who came in, had something wrong with their leg and their daughter had said to them, mom, you can't go out there. Because you go out to the hospital, you're going to get COVID. You're going to get sick. This thing's not going to kill you. Which, by the way, people, like, the hospital is probably the best place you could go. It's like the one place where all of these guidelines are actually being followed. But that's a different story. <laughs> but anyway, so, so she had this thing with her leg. And then I'm talking to her. And I was like, so, you know, how was your um, Thanksgiving? And she's like, it was just the most fun. All the grandkids and and all my children and, you know, just like implying that they had this huge family gathering, mm-hmm. but yet her daughter didn't want her to come out to the hospital because she might catch something. <laughs> so like there's a really big disconnect between like what's important in trying to protect people against like the spread of disease. Right.
0: So you're in the inpatient setting and the outpatient setting. What has been the typical course for COVID patients that you've witnessed from the inpatient and outpatient setting.
1: You know, one thing that I'll say is being new to the community, and then also I think by my age, I haven't had just a ton of patient, of my own patients admitted to the hospital for COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, I've covered my partner's patients. I've had a few. You know, I've had some people that I've had over that I've had like when I was on call and things like that, and just in kind of consulting with my with my colleagues about. Like how they're managing their patients, but but yeah, I mean it's a it's pretty typical. So what happens is you're at somebody who's high risk, so considered to be in a high risk category, whether that be by age or maybe by comorbidities. Some of the things that we see, and these are all this is anecdotal, but also somewhat supported by by the current evidence. We feel like you know if you have diabetes, you're more likely to. Be hospitalized, you know. If especially if you, as you get older, and add obesity on top of that, some of our younger patients that have been hospitalized, forties and things like that, they tend to have more morbid obesity than not. And then also, we have a pretty big Hispanic population in our county, and um, it does seem like. And again, this is supported by the evidence that Hispanics tend to do worse with COVID than, um, and African Americans too, but. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but then they're, you know, Caucasian counterparts. So, um, there's kind of a typical picture that you can suspect and recognize early on who may and may not do well with COVID. Um, but usually day seven to 10 after the onset of symptoms is when they turn a corner. So they may have been doing really well, you know, may not have had even that many, that much of symptoms. Once a day seven to ten hits is when they start having the shortness of breath, start really getting um, they're, they're having difficulty, and that's usually when they end up in the hospital. We have had some people who have been a couple of weeks out and were doing fine and end up in the hospital, but usually it's around that seven to ten day period. And then you know they they go into the hospital and we start them on oxygen therapy. We have some. Medications that have shown some benefit, so like um, dexamethasone or kind of like their steroid equivalents, have shown mortality benefit. Remdesivir, if you've, if you know, people have heard of that, is a medication that really shows more decreases the length of stay in hospitalization. Initial reports did show that it helped with mortality, but seems to be really more just reducing length of stay. And then after that, you know, a lot of the other stuff is just kind of weak evidence. And so some some of our colleagues use certain medications that maybe others don't. Mm -hmm. And it's then, you know, obviously tailoring it from patient to patient. You know, you can kind of tell when patients start requiring more and more oxygen, how it's going to go. We also see a lot of delirium. Um, So, you know try not to use too many big medical terms but mm-hmm. as far as just like we'll um, call it not brain really pa- yeah and patients not knowing where they are getting very confused wanting to pull off their oxygen and so you you see that in the ICU just in general but it seems to be even worse with covid and there are you know there's some literature out there that talks about the encephalopathy that can occur um so the basically brain inflammation that can occur with covid and so, you know, we've had plenty of patients that have been discharged and have gone home. A lot of the patients that are discharged and go home, go home with oxygen, and and they're on oxygen for weeks, if not longer. Um, and then sadly, of course, we've had quite a few patients die. Our case fatality rate, so basically the number of deaths divided by number of people, number of known people who have had COVID, so tested positive, is about 3%. Hmm. So...
0: So the unfortunate part of this, of course, is that this is something new. This is a new virus. We don't know everything. We don't have all the research, a lot of things that we use to treat people on, as far as with other infections like pneumonias, based upon years and years of research that has been done previously. How has this kind of been different for you as a physician, trying to treat people with something that's new, that has all kind of random symptoms that... Has is not really expressed in other things. I know the initial onset of thought was, oh, this is just kind of like the flu. But then people started losing their taste and smell. And it's like, oh, okay, this is not like the flu.
1: Yeah, and, and not even, I mean, the symptoms vary so, so broadly. I mean, you'll have one person who has, you know, mild cold symptoms for a day or two. I've seen rashes, um, loss of taste and smell, mental fog and and depression in the outpatient setting and then you know of course on the inpatient all the way all the way to death obviously so you know we we kind of grew up in a time as far as brought through medical school and residency and in a very strong time of something we call evidence based medicine so basically we try to or, or our goal would be that we practice based off of what evidence tells us, what studies have told us is most effective. And I think that's really important. And in my general practice, for the most part, that's that's how I practice. Um, Before kind of the advent of evidence-based medicine, a lot of stuff was very anecdotal. You know, I tried this and it seemed to work. So I'm going to go I'm going to continue to try this. And you know, multiple people have said that it works, so so we think it works. Um, but we've really pushed towards this idea of evidence-based medicine probably in the past couple of decades that really informs the way that we practice. The problem with it though is in the setting of a pandemic. The the reason I say that is because you kind of find yourself in this balance of, I want the evidence to support what I'm doing, but I don't have time to wait for it. Mm -hmm. So How do I balance between this, between this idea of needing to treat people and wanting to try and prevent severity of disease and wanting to try and to prevent death, but not having a lot of great evidence. So we have a lot of low quality evidence on a lot of different medications, you know, things out right now, like ivermectin, Mm -hmm. um, you know, even, (laughs) what is that? Yeah. I mean, you know, high dose vitamin C mm-hmm. is another one that people are looking at. And so, you know, you don't, I, in my opinion, I don't think you want to be the very first of this, but you also don't want to be the very last one to adapt to it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really about right now, it's really about weighing risks and benefits. So if you have something that, you know, maybe the evidence isn't that great, but the risk of the medication is very low then maybe you try it and you, and you see if it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. I do think very importantly that you talk to your patients about that and see kind of where they are. Mm-hmm. And you also consider the risk of your patient. You know, I don't know that I would broadly prescribe certain medications to all of my patients because they all have different risk factors. So mm-hmm. the 30-year-old who's incredibly healthy, who has no medical problems at all, I would probably just say, Take some Tylenol, drink a lot of water, take some vitamins. Whereas the you know seventy-year-old who has a lot of comorbidities who are, is really at risk for being hospitalized, I might be more willing to try something that isn't doesn't have a whole lot of evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. But we have these low qualities of evidence, and and they're willing to try anything to help them um, from getting hospitalized. So mm-hmm. it's really a weird kind of place to be in medicine as far as what is what's the right thing to do
0: right right because sadly people think that we're experimenting on them that's the problem that it leads to
1: well we have a lot of people here <laughs> we have a lot of people here that just buy ivermectin from the feed store and <laughs> give it to themselves <laughs> so it might be a little bit different. I think we might have a few different problems. No,
0: no, no. I'm I'm hesitant about giving people that. Like, I don't know. Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't know. It's I don't. It's hard. It's it's really a a hard balance to find. But I think the most important thing, especially for patients, and this is just in general, is to find a doctor. That you trust, and hopefully it's somebody who is willing to spend time to answer your questions mm-hmm. and address your concerns, and to weigh all of these things into context about what is the right treatment for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's hard, you know, if you if you have a doctor that you know maybe you see once every year or once every couple of years, it's hard to you know that level of trust as far as if they advise you on something, it's it's hard to feel like, do I know if this is the right thing or not? So
0: Correct. Because we're we're all trying to figure this out together on the fly in yeah. the of the pandemic.
1: Yeah, that's that's true.
0: But so it's kind of hard for us as physicians to say, like, oh yeah, you have pneumonia. We give you this medication. We give you like uh, most people know a pack, or give you some kind of other antibiotic that works. And we know that that's usually treats most cases. But now it's hard. It's people doing research kind of in a short time period, like, hey, I did this for a month with 300 patients. This may work. Here's a suggestion. Then sitting down and having conversations with people like, Like, okay, this is what somebody used and it worked for them. One example that I give patients is um, fish oil to help bring their smell and taste back. I read that in one JAMA article that it may help to regenerate nerves. And that's that's kind of what telling people is the risk reward. Taking fish oil is not really an extreme risk. And the reward is that you may get your smell and taste back.
1: I will say, though, I took a prenatal vitamin that had some DHA in it Mm -hmm. that I think is derived from fish. Oh, my gosh. Fish burps for, like, (laughs) half a day. I couldn't handle it. So, risk-reward in that one, I would definitely take lack of taste and smell.
0: (laughs) Right. I want to expand on that. Like, you've gotten vaccinated. What went into your thought process of becoming vaccinated? Because it's one of those things that it's something new, new treatment. And we're all kind of people are kind of on the fence if they should or shouldn't get vaccinated.
1: I um I spent a lot of time leading up to when the vaccines were going to be released, really trying to understand the new the technology behind mRNA vaccines and so that I could make an educated decision, not only for myself, but then also to educate my patients and my community on it as well. So the first thing was that I did not make a decision just because it was recommended to me. Um, I spent a lot of time reading and researching and understanding and listening to people that I trust who were able to educate me on, on kind of the sciences. Now it helps that I have a science background that I can understand it, but, but that was kind of step one in all of this. Um, So I, I spent a lot of time reading and researching on this. And then when the time finally came for, the, for Pfizer to, to go under review for FDA for emergency use, use authorization, I was, well, I, don't, I can't do the math, but maybe like eight weeks pregnant. So that kind of threw a wrench in everything because I thought, man, you know, I've, I've come to the point where I really want to be vaccinated I want to be vaccinated for a lot of reasons, one because I want this pandemic to come to an end, so very selfishly't mm-hmm. um, don't, don't, don't mix words like very selfishly, I want this I want this pandemic to come to, a, to an end. you know I, I want to be able to I want to be able to do things. I want to feel comfortable when I go around my friends. I want to feel comfortable when I'm around my patients, but also and really important to me is I really wanted to be able to set an example for my community that I was okay, like I felt like this was good science and and safe and um, something to do. So where I became caught up was, but what about the pregnancy? Like, I guess, you know, I, I can't imagine that they're going to approve it in pregnancy because, of, because they didn't have a big study with pregnant patients. But as time went on and the more I thought about, and the whole time I thought, yeah, but how could it be, Biologically, pathophysiologically, how can an mRNA vaccine be problematic for a pregnancy? You know we don't give live vaccines to pregnant patients um, for the theoretical risk that it could cause live infection. But otherwise, you know we give tons of vaccines to not tons, but we give vaccines to pregnant patients frequently. Um, in fact, you know, there are two vaccines that are recommended in the right time frame. Um, for vaccine and pregnancy, currently a Tdap and a flu shot, and so then the ACOG and the Society of Maternal-Fetal Medicine and the Society of End- Reproductive Endocrinology all came out with their statements, basically saying, you know, we don't think that it should be withheld from pregnant patients, and and the FDA also did not like, basically said we don't think it should be withheld from pregnant patients. So. The last part to that is one of the things before they go on to moving, doing um, studies in um, pregnancy, they have to do studies in animal models. They're called DART studies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they had already done DART studies in, uh, for Moderna in mice, and they, were, they didn't find anything uh, wrong reproductively in those studies. And so all of that put into context is what made me decide And I talked to my OB and I talked to my husband and I talked to a lot of physician friends. Um, But that's what made me decide to go ahead and be vaccinated. And so I got my first Moderna shot um, three and a half weeks ago, and I will get my second dose in a couple of days. And um, baby's growing good. I feel good.
0: Okay, no side effects after the first uh, dose. I,
1: I had my my arm was sore.
0: Just growing. I don't see. No, you.
1: Yeah. you know the radio stations. Like being able to pick those up is pretty cool. You know wherever I am, like just like Motley Crue playing in the background or whatever. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I mean I had some soreness in my arm, like a tetanus shot for mm-hmm. two days, but that was it. And we'll see what the next shot shows. But I can't imagine that it's going to be anything worse than continuing with this pandemic.
0: Right. Right. So so kind of as we wrap up, how are we going to make it through this pandemic? What do we need to do in the healthcare setting and what do patients need to do and people in general need to do for us all make it through?
1: I think this is a good time to kind of bring up the idea of total risk minimization. In other words, you know, We really have to weigh our public health response and our interactions of how we move forward in this process with how are we going to reduce the most risk, all harm, all cause mortality, all harm morbidity um, as we move forward in this pandemic. So in other words, death and hospitalization is not the only bad outcome of this pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, we have... So many kids who have not been in public school. We have increased rates of substance abuse. We have increased rates of depression and anxiety. People have lost their jobs, economic depression. People have lost their businesses. You know, I I think when people are still talking about like the public health response to this pandemic, you know, we kind of still have camps that are like, shut everything down, save every single life that there is. And then we have camps that are, keep everything wide open. You know, we can't, we can't stop life for uh, a deadly virus. And I don't know why we, where we have gone so wrong in society that we have to think that we live in such extremes, but we shouldn't. Um, we really should weigh the risk of all of these things and put them in context and also weigh our individual risk and weigh the risk of our loved ones and the people around us. So, you know, I think moving forward, in my mind, one of the most important things that we can do long-term is vaccination. Really, vaccination is the, is the only way that we're going to end this pandemic with the least amount of uh, deaths and also the least amount of all of the other things, bad things that the pandemic can cause. So, you know, we're not just talking about deaths, we're talking about kids being out of school, depression, economic loss, all that kind of stuff. This is the way that we finally exit this nightmare of a year. And so really, really educating our population. You know, I, I think we can do a better job as like our government and, and then even as individual physician leaders in our communities. I think we can do a much better job in educating patients about the importance of vaccination and also, um, you know, the, the current safety and efficacy of these vaccines as well. But we also know that, you know, even if you do get a vaccine, there's still, it still takes time for it to work. And in the meantime, you know, thousands of people are dying every day. 4,000 people are dying every single day of this, vac- of this um, disease. And as much as we can in the next few months, we really need to follow guidelines Limit our social interactions, um, social distance, wear a mask in public. You know, I, I, I hate doing a well, I mean, I don't really care. I don't really mind wearing a mask, honestly. I totally take back the whole surgeon thing. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, there, there are sacrifices that we need to make. And let's talk about why you're making that sacrifice. So some people are making that sacrifice for the benefit of their children. You know, if you follow these guidelines, your kids get to be in school. If you follow these guidelines, your kids get to participate. And the big thing around here is stock shows. So do you I mean, do you know what a stock show is?
0: Yes, I know. Do, you, what a stock do stock
1: Most is. of our listeners know what a stock show is. I don't know. But <laughs>
0: you can explain what a stock show a is. A stock
1: show is where you take your, your animals like pigs, steers, mm-hmm rabbits and you, you, you know, like the, like a dog show, mm-hmm. you know, and you, and you walk them around and show, and then they get prizes like money. And then unfortunately they go to the cell and then people sell them for other things. <laughs> anyway. So the stock show is a big thing right here, right now. So, you know, if you if your goal is that your child can show their pig Sally in the stock show, like you follow social guidelines for that. If your goal, and this is a really big one, if your goal is just to respect, to show your healthcare workers some respect, you know, you, maybe you follow social guidelines for that because you care about your friend that's a nurse, you care about your friend that's a doctor that's been going through all of this stuff, and and you do things out of respect for them. So, regardless of what your motivation is, moving forward in the next few weeks or a few months, um, we really just need to work a lot harder in following these guidelines in trying to prevent the spread of disease. But like I said, you know, number one is, is vaccination.
0: All right. We're only going to get through this together and everybody needs to do their best to do their part so we can get back to some sort of normalcy.
1: Yeah, because really, I'd really like to take a trip somewhere or something.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? We got to get you back to the stock shows too.
1: <laughs> get to the stock shows.
0: <laughs> you have any animals right now? Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I'm not a stock show person. Yeah. Oh, you so classy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're going to bring back Dr. Deal for Randy's random questions. I know she's excited about that. I can see the look on her face. She's like, ooh, where is this coming from? So, and then we'll wrap up. You ready, Sydney?
1: I'm ready. Was it too harsh in all my answers?
0: (laughs) No, no, no. You weren't too harsh at all. We keep it real and honest over here on On Call with Dr. Randy. So we got you on the hot seat for Randy's random questions. Question number one, you have a mom day to yourself. Your husband has taken the kids away. You have the house to yourself. You're watching TV. You're flipping channels. What movie will you stop on if you see this movie on TV while you're flipping channels like, ooh, such and such is on. And you're going to sit there and watch the whole movie. You can't drink wine right now because you're preggos, but (laughs) you get to sit there and watch this movie. What movie are you going to stop on immediately?
1: I was so sad that this Christmas I did not watch Love Actually I know that's such trash, (laughs) such trash, and so terrible. Like, God, don't let my grandmother know that I'm watching this. But every year, I watch it every year, and I didn't get to watch it this year. So, I
0: love actually,
1: it's horrible, it's terrible, (laughs) horrible trash. I don't know, but I just watch it every year. Just just a great Christmas, uh, (laughs) really, the meaning behind Christmas, right?
0: All right. What is the one thing that you've learned to love about your husband, James? Like, it might oh. have irritated you in the beginning, but you just...
1: Oh, in that regard?
0: Yeah, it's oh. like, okay, that's just my husband. I'm just going to love to love this part of him. Yeah, we got you on the hot seat with that one. <laughs> I
1: thought I was just going to answer what I love about him. That was going to be really easy.
0: Okay, you can ask answer what you love about James so you can tell... How much?
1: Oh, okay. I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you what it is. Anytime we get into, okay, because, so my husband's a doctor. I know you know that. But so we talk, we have like, our, our conversations are incredibly nerdy. I mean, especially now, like all we ever talk about is medicine. But God, he is so annoying when he tries to argue the opposite side that I know he doesn't even believe in. He just does it just to annoy me. I mean i don't know if i've come to love that just yet but i appreciate the back and forth but he will do it every single time i know he doesn't even i know he doesn't even believe what he's saying he just does it just to get under my skin
0: <laughs> that's what a good spouse does yeah <laughs> i don't know anything about that but maybe in the future i'll know how my spouse kind of irritates me and gets under my skin <laughs> What is one word that you would use to describe country slash rural living? Easy. Easy. Why easy?
1: So I I said this earlier and I wasn't kidding. The problem with metropolitan urban living, which I love, by the way, I loved living in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. is the illusion of choice. You have too many choices and you can spend so much time trying to decide what to choose. You don't have that here. Mm-hmm. You know, I got one go- grocery store, I got one dry cleaners. I life life is easy.
0: Very simple, very basic for you. So yeah. so speaking of Atlanta, what is one thing that you miss about Atlanta?
1: I mean Randy, ran definitely Randy. Um,
0: <laughs> and the food.
1: <laughs> but but yes, the food for sure.
0: What was your favorite it's, go-to places out here?
1: Oh, okay. So number 1 Chai Pani in decatur indian food indian street food let me try and think i mean this one's not fair favorite barbecue is fox brothers but they're texas so i mean obviously no but if i if i were to go back like when i the next time i go back first place i'm going is Chaipani. okay my favorite
0: so how many children do you have now
1: i have um two Mm -hmm. and one cooking So I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old, 18-month-old, and then 18 weeks gestation.
0: Okay. All right. So they're all kind of young, especially the one that's still inside of you. But which one do you feel like is going to give you the most trouble as a teenager?
1: Oh, my Annie, my daughter, my number one.
0: (laughs) You said that quick and fast. Why Annie?
1: (laughs) She is, oh, my goodness. You know, I think everybody, I think... Of course, all parents think their children are special. So I take that with a grain of salt, but she's too smart for her own good. Mm. She really is. She's a, she, you really can't even manipulate her anymore. You know, that's, that's a big part of being a parent is manipulation. What and,
0: do you try to manipulate her?
1: Oh, you know, like try and trick, oh, yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. But yeah. You know, going to sleep is a really good idea because then when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be really refreshed or even just trying to trick her by like saying, we'll get donuts. If she like sleeps in her bed, mm-hmm. doesn't work. She's just like, nah, I don't care. <laughs> you got to sleep with me.
0: You don't try to give her any melatonin gummies.
1: Not yet, but I'm not, I don't know that I'm against it.
0: <laughs> I know a lot of my friends, they'd be like, here, come get your candy. I'm like, they always give <laughs> their kids candy before bed. Oh, that's that melatonin they'll be knocked out in a little bit. <laughs> all right. So that's all the questions I have for Randy's random questions. We'll let you off the hot seat. Thank you for sitting down and talking to me about COVID and your experience at your hospital and your community setting. Do you want to leave any lasting words for the people, for my listeners?
1: Yeah, I. I. Well, thanks for having me, one. Um, and I think the last thing I'll say is, just kinda of what you said and and um, we really are to a degree dependent on each other and how we move forward in the rest of this. And so really thinking about your family and thinking about your neighbor and just trying to provide grace and support for everybody that you come in contact with in the next few months because we've all had a really rough year and it's gonna continue for a while. So just have faith that you know people are doing the best that they can look for the good of humanity even if it becomes hard sometimes
0: Mm -hmm. even if you have the faith of a mustard seed hang on to it that wraps up part two of the interview with dr Deal. I had to go look up the movie Love, actually. I remember seeing the poster, but I haven't watched it yet. Very interesting cast. It had Liam Neeson from Taken, the British actor who played Mr. Bean, and the black British actor Chewy Tail Ejiofor. Man, I hope I said that correctly. I tried to pronounce that name like five times, but he was the lead actor in the movie 12 Years a Slave, He's also been in Doctor Strange. And fun fact, he was also the voice of Scar in the most recent Lion King movie. Brother, help me. Long live the King. No! In a voice, tell me you just didn't act out the Lion King. Yeah, pretty good, huh? And the Grammy goes to me. You wouldn't get a Grammy. You would get an Oscar, you stupid voice. (sighs) So to get back on task, as mentioned earlier, there are two different categories for COVID testing, diagnostic testing and antibody testing. The molecular test, aka the PCR test, is the most accurate and may take a little bit longer to come back. The antigen test, which is the quick point of care test, Like I mentioned earlier, that's done in like CVS and other facilities that give you the results in about 30 minutes to an hour. It's the least accurate test, but it gives you the results the fastest. So if you wanna get a test and wanna make sure it's the most accurate, I suggest you get a PCR test. I've had patients where the first test, which would be like the quick test that we may do in the office came back negative, but then we also sent off the PCR test And that came back positive so there are a lot of false negatives which means that you get the results initially and it's negative but you do the better test and it actually is positive so if you had a choice make sure you try to get the pcr test the other test that you can also get is the antibody test which informs you if you have or haven't been infected with COVID before however it doesn't tell you if you're currently infected if you have So to confirm if you're currently infected, you have to get one of those earlier tests that I mentioned. If you have been exposed to someone with COVID, you should quarantine for 14 days and get tested approximately two days after exposure. This will provide the most accurate test. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to rate, like, and subscribe. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts right now, leave me a five-star rating. I need three more ratings to get to 30. Let's help Dr. Randy get to 30. If I get to 30, I think Apple sends me a gift. I think it's like um, one of those clicking pencils with my name on it, or it's a sad Drake zone. I get one of those for free. I don't, I don't know, it's very weird, the type of gifts that they give when you reach certain milestones. But let's help Dr. Randy get to 30 ratings. Shout out to S. L. Rice 6 for leaving me a comment. Hope you're continuing to laugh and learn something from the podcast. Shout out to all the AKAs listening to the podcast. Shout out especially to the AKA working in the White House. I'll be back for another episode next week. Next week, we'll have a nurse talking about her perspective dealing with COVID. You'll enjoy that episode. So see you all again next week. Stay healthy physically and mentally.